KYW Original Podcasts. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic in Philadelphia, subscribe to KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to podcasts. The coronavirus pandemic from KYW In-Depth. I'm Matt Leon. Now, I am a history buff, and given our current situation, I've done a lot of reading and learning about pandemics and health emergencies of the past. One thing I noticed is Philadelphia has played a central role in some pretty extraordinary situations. So we thought we'd put together a podcast. Looking back at some times, Philadelphia was in the health spotlight. Up first, we're going way, way back, 1793 to be exact. That's when a yellow fever outbreak brought the city to its knees. Now, for details on this, we spoke with Anna Doty. She's the curator of the Mütter Museum right here in Philadelphia. So let's start with the basics because it's not uh, it's not a disease that I think a lot of people are familiar with in this day and age. What is yellow fever? Well, in, in a nutshell, ye- yellow fever is an infectious disease and it is a viral disease. But it is not spread by human-to-human contact. It is spread by the bite of a mosquito. So it, uh, it is not, you cannot, a human-to-human uh, transmission, what we call a casual contact, cannot spread yellow fever but it is a blood-borne infectious disease. So we talk about what yellow fever is. If someone had it, was suffering with it, eventually died with it, how awful a disease was this? It's interesting because the disease actually had two phases. Not everybody uh, went into the second phase. So the first phase, now I should also mention that you know this is a, a viral uh, infection. There were people that would um, actually have it, but not show any symptoms. And at the time, they didn't. They didn't have statistics as to what percentage of the people actually had yellow fever and didn't show any symptoms. So, for those that showed symptoms, the first stage was typically, and I should say, the time of infection was about three to six days from the time you were infected, i.e., bitten, to the time you showed illness. You know, approximately three to six days. You would get fever, chills, um, fatigue, general overall weakness. Uh, You may also get nausea and vomiting. General overall body aches were also common, as were more specific types of pain, like a a severe headache or specifically like back pain. Those were the general symptoms of the yellow fever. And then what's interesting, interesting in kind of a macabre way, is about one out of seven of the people who had those initial symptoms, they would experience this uh, period of remission or a brief recovery. That time period could be a matter of hours, even up to a day. But then what would happen is you would, they would immediately then go into the second phase, which uh, usually uh, was a very high fever, jaundice. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's called yellow fever, because jaundice causes uh, yellowing of the skin. You would have bleeding um, internal, and you would also bleed out of um, of various orifices, Um, and then shock, and then uh, organ failure, so multiple organ failure. And uh, the statistics are a little um, wide, but they would estimate about 30 to 60% of the people who had the second form, uh, the more severe second stage, would die. And that's something that still occurs, so to kind of put it in, in modern perspective, 
the we, the CDC, uh, I think they record about 200,000 cases worldwide of yellow fever, and that results in about 30,000 deaths a year. So it's this is not something that has gone away. It's still it still happens today. Now, this was a very serious concern for a long time, and there mm-hmm. were a lot of bad outbreaks. But it seems like Philadelphia 1793 was one of the worst. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what happened in the city of Brotherly Love in 1793. You're absolutely right. I mean, Philadelphia had a significant uh level of mortality, uh, especially in 1793. There were outbreaks uh, previous to that, so it wasn't a new thing for Philadelphians. We had outbreaks in, I believe, 1699, 1741, and 1762. But you had to factor in that some things occurred between the 1762 outbreak and the one in 1793. The population of Philadelphia greatly increased. At the time, it was the capital of the United States. And it was the most um, highly populous city in in the nation. So you had all of that. You had a very active port, uh, you know, a very active waterfront where a lot of ships were coming in. And because it was uh, transmitted by mosquitoes, that's what really started everything, was a ship carrying these infected mosquitoes docked in our port. Uh, we started uh, recording episodes of this fever in August, in early August. And... Benjamin Rush, who was one of the fellows of the College of Physicians, uh, noticed an increase in these fevers. And he had actually been, um, they used the term uh, apprentice, or, you know, we would think of him more as an intern, um, medical intern, during the last outbreak in 1762. So he recognized it as, uh, I believe he called it the bilious yellow fever. And immediately he contacted his colleagues and he contacted the government to let them know that this outbreak was occurring. How bad was it? Can you give us some context uh, in in numbers as to when it was all said and done, how hard Philadelphia got hit in 1793? Uh, It was was pretty bad. Um, Basically, the the numbers vary. They recorded approximately 5,000 deaths uh, between early August and the end of October, uh, to middle to the end of October. Now, those were all of the deaths, in, so that would include some people who did die of, of causes other than yellow fever, but it's a vast, vast, vast number of those were yellow fever. And uh, they did have some very specific numbers, uh, I believe, between the dates of uh, October 7th and October 13th, 711 deaths were reported. So you're having a significant amount of people dying. And it's hard to give percentages because one of the other things that happened was, you know, the population of the city at the time was about 50,000, but they record about 20,000 inhabitants fleeing to the countryside, to more rural parts to escape the city. So when they give the, uh, the death tolls of around 10% of the population of Philadelphia, that is actually not factoring in, you know, all the, all the people that escaped. So I think, the, the numbers of deaths of the people who were in the city at the time were even higher. So it's kind of it's kind of hard to, when you're looking at the numbers, but um, I think, you know, it's just thousands uh, and thousands of people died. And to put that in kind of perspective, you know, if, if you give the account about 50,000 people uh, were in the city in 1793, about, we have about 1,580,000 
people in the city now, like 1.6 million, uh, roughly. Sorry, 1.6 million. Yeah. And if you took that 10 percent number, uh, you would looking you're looking at over 150,000 people dead. You know, 160,000 people would be dead today if you're uh, using the same proportions. You mentioned Benjamin Rush and how he reacted telling that, telling government officials, telling other medical personnel. Uh, were there other things the city did to respond? I've just in some mm-hmm. in in looking online and doing some research, I I noticed that you know some city, some other cities stopped sending uh, supplies because they didn't want anything coming back. How how were some other ways that the, this was responded to? So there were some direct and some indirect uh, actions that were taken. So in terms of direct actions, um, Benjamin Rush, again, reported that. And then uh, the mayor at the time, uh, he uh, asked uh, Rush and his colleagues at the College of Physicians to meet and to come up with some guidance, some criteria uh, for what to to do. Um, and so the college, the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, they published a letter in uh, the newspaper and they gave some very specific measures on what not only the government could do, but what the population could do as well. And that varied from, uh, in terms of the government, it was uh, cleaning the streets and the wharfs, which is great, but um, unfortunately not very effective because the mosquitoes can breed even in clean water. So um, they they did a good job in, in terms of cleaning up um, some of the filth that was on the street, but they couldn't eliminate every um, bit of standing fresh water. And, you know, mosquitoes can breed in a thimble full of water. So it was it was a, a well-thought measure, but unfortunately it didn't have um, the consequences that they wanted. They also uh, advocated trying to increase the oxygen levels in the streets by excluding gunpowder in the middle of the street. So not great. Um, they did some other things in terms of, you know, again, not knowing how it was spread. They, they uh, advocated quarantining the sick and not allowing uh, children to be in the same room as a sick person, uh, things like this. And all of these treatments, all of these recommendations were based on um, not, not really knowing or having an, uh, they thought actually at the time there's different theories of, of infection. We actually have an, an exhibition at the college called Going Viral at the Mütter Museum where we talk about the different ways we thought people got infected by disease. And in 1793, you really had the miasma theory that was uh, prevalent, and that was the belief that infection was caused by uh, bad smells, basically. And so Rush and his colleagues actually thought that uh, the outbreak originated because of a crop of rotted coffee that was on the docks. Um, so it was kind of interesting so that all of these uh, these ideas were predicated on a failed understanding of the transmission of the disease. So what are, some of the other things that they did, again, based on not knowing, was that they, they actually had this theory that... Uh, People of African ancestry couldn't get uh, the yellow fever, and so they specifically solicited black people to uh, help with the sick and the dying, and uh, they did. And and unfortunately, uh, it turns out that that was not the case, and about I think about 240 people of African ancestry died, and that is the exact same proportion as the rest of the population. So that was, um, you know, that was another kind of... Uh, outcome from an erroneous assumption 
Um, but they did do some good things. They, the good things that they did were really based on uh, addressing the needs of the time. So there were sick people. So they built temporary hospitals. They did hire more nurses. Um, the mayor at the time, his name was Clarkson, uh, Matthew Clarkson, I believe. And he was very organized and he set about uh, doing very specific things. So he formed committees to address the specific needs needs that arose as the result of the yellow fever. He reorganized um, the fever hospitals. He uh, found temporary housing for people who were orphaned. Uh, He uh, formed committees that focused on how to get the sick to the hospitals and how to get the the dead to the the burial grounds. Um, How he he organized uh, committees that were to feed the sick people to visit and and care for sick people. So he was really uh, very uh, proactive and successful in organizing uh, these direct actions that dealt with the effects of the yellow fever rather than uh, uh, trying to treat it or prevent it. Those were the things that did not have as much uh, effect because they were based off of a failed understanding of how it was transmitted. So, yeah, so another some of the other failed things. And again, I mean, I'm using that term and, you know, that's kind of erroneous as I'm looking I'm looking at this through a 21st century lens. You know, I mean, they just did not understand there was not germ theory back then. They didn't understand parasites, the mosquitoes. So there was, you know, so we have to think of it in that way, that they did the best they could with the information and medical theories that abounded at the time. Um, but, you know, one of the things that you mentioned was, uh, you know, quarantine. So one of the things that arose from the fear of of this was they, they thought that it was the, uh, again, the humans that were on board these ships that were the agents, uh, injectors of the disease. So they uh, banned refugees. Uh, they quarantined people. Um, they blamed a specific uh, ship that had, came, that had come from uh, what is now called, what is now Haiti. But they quarantined these individuals and they tried to even quarantine their goods. But once the mosquitoes have escaped, you know, the ship, there's not much uh, they could really, really do about that. But you were seeing uh, fear in the population and they were blaming refugees or, or immigrants coming in from these ships. And then what you started to see were other states around us uh, fearing Pennsylvanians and Philadelphians. And so they would other states start, started to set up blockades and started stopped um, people from Philadelphia from coming, going to the various different uh, areas. So you started to see um, the blockades and, and these militias roaming uh, the, the, the roads and turning people back. Uh, they didn't want coming into their area. So there was definitely um, a variety of different responses to this. As far as when it, there was never a cure found, but they found a vaccine. And it was actually, wasn't it about, it was about a century until they started to even consider that it was uh, mosquitoes. And then uh, kind of talk about how we we were able to finally get our hands around uh, how to deal with yellow fever overall. Well, in terms of the 1793, uh, you know, epidemic, it, it didn't stop until we had a, a, a prolonged period of cold weather. Um, there was a there was a dip in cases when we had a, a short cold spell, but then it got warmer again in October and you saw more cases. So um, it really wasn't until we had a good frost that, uh, that the cases stopped. And uh, so in terms of the aftermath of, of that, there was 
a lot of, everybody had an opinion. There were a lot of people who wrote commentaries that kind of looked back and accusations, uh, you know, abounded back and forth about uh, treatments and cures uh, for a long, for a long period of time. But the germ theory, like you said, it didn't come about, come around until really about a hundred years later. And in our understanding that there were microorganisms, there were these bacteria, there were these viruses that could cause sickness. And, and you know, if you had told Benjamin Rush back in 1793 that there were, there were, you know, vectors of disease that were so small that you couldn't see them with the naked eye, I don't, you know, he probably would have uh, scoffed at you. But, you know, it's it's one of those things where the germ, the germ theory really uh, took a long time to, to take hold because it was so amazing to even comprehend to somebody at the time that, that something that small could wreak such havoc in the human body. And final question, how did the 1793 outbreak uh, ingrain itself on the city's memory? There were some direct results of that. So the governor actually ordered um, that the the city be kept cleaner, uh, this, particularly uh public city streets and the, the wharf, you know, that the docks, they, they were uh, kept clean. And uh, they, they policed uh, the, the wharfs and the, and the ships coming in. They, of course, they, they, really, they really paid particular attention to ships coming from the Caribbean. And they did a uh, two-week quarantine uh, to, to make sure that people weren't um, having symptoms. So that's one of the things that, that was a direct result of that. And then you had lots of... Um, accusations uh, kind of going back and forth as to uh, what would have been more effective treatments had they been applied. And that started this whole kind of um, medical uh, war between two different factions of the um, medical community. So it was really interesting to kind of fall out and it reverberated for for many, many years. And keep in mind, again, we still had outbreaks of yellow fever after 1793. I think that's that's kind of forgotten that that you know, 1793 was definitely our, our worst, um, but there, we, the yellow fever, uh, not only did it come back in Philadelphia, but just you had more and more cities reporting yellow fever throughout the country. And in the 19th century, it was really, um, uh, you know, it was really one of the number one most feared infectious diseases. To the 20th century now, in 1918, a deadly flu pandemic swept the globe, killed tens of millions of people worldwide, hundreds of thousands of people here in the U.S. Now, we did a podcast last month on how and why Philadelphia was hit especially hard, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on that here, but Philadelphia was a textbook example in 1918 of what happens when social distancing isn't taken seriously, and it's worth revisiting here. Here's an eye-opening clip from that podcast we did earlier. We spoke with Dr. George Wolreich, president and CEO of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia. And I'm sure you know the story of the famous Liberty Bond Parade in Philadelphia. That's my next question. Uh, we, we've heard so much about social distancing and it, the importance of it. And really, you know, in 1918, Philadelphia was actually the example of what not to do. Uh, talk about that parade and Philadelphia, am I correct? Highest death rate of any major American city? Yes, that is true. If one thinks about the war, and it was quite different from more recent wars, in that there was absolute uniform across the board feelings of 
hatred towards the Germans. And I stress that because doing everything for the American cause and for the cause of the Allies took precedence over everything. So raising money through Liberty Bonds was considered absolutely essential and an absolutely essential patriotic act. Parades are things that people love. People come out for parades. They come out in droves. Think about, you know, the Eagles Super Bowl parade and then magnify it. That's what a Liberty Bond parade was like. And and if you want me to go on with what happened, people were aware, physicians were aware, public health officers, except maybe the head of the U.S. Public Health Service. But most public health service knew that something very bad was going on and that it was very contagious and that you shouldn't be standing next to people. And they warned the city fathers, the mayor and people like that, don't hold the parade. But that was tantamount to saying, don't be a patriot. Don't support our troops. Don't support our boys over there. So they went ahead with the parade. And given at that time, the incubation period for this influenza was about three days. Three days later, all 31 hospitals in Philadelphia were overrun with patients. And essentially, it was a logjam. So what are how did they handle it? Was it just mass death or were there anything they did to to try to deal with the overrun and such? For all intents and purposes, and of course, there are people who debate this, the city came to a stop. Essential services stopped. Uh, social services stopped. There certainly weren't any formal you know, social net or economic net type of practices in place at that time. So people were essentially left to their own devices. People were dying at home. Bodies were being taken out and stacked up like cordwood. But it was well-thinking citizens, some from the main line who came in, some from the city, who rolled up their sleeves or rolled down their sleeves and went to work delivering food, delivering whatever medicines were available, nothing specific for this thing, uh, providing firewood, providing coal. So this is volunteerism at its very, very best, filling in for what was essentially, in my opinion, a government that ground to a halt. Let's fast forward now to 1976. Philadelphia, ground zero for the discovery of Legionnaire's disease, a type of pneumonia. An outbreak here made national news. Now, the name Legionnaire's disease, it came from the fact that it was at an American Legion convention where it all started. Eventually, more than a couple hundred people were infected. More than 30 died. Legendary KYW Suburban Bureau Chief at the time, Jay Lloyd, who's now retired, he covered the story spoke with me about his memories of covering that story and what happened. What I can basically tell you, remember this a lot of years ago, 76. And you have to remember 1976 was one of the busiest years, uh, news years that we had because of the bicentennial. And there were so many events happening. And put on top of that, the Bellevue Stratford Hotel, 
this was the focal point normally of a lot of activity. Every single day, you had uh, people, the, the movers and shakers of Pennsylvania and Philadelphia in that hotel, attending very, they were attending various service luncheons, you know, Rotary Club, Lions, and that sort of thing. They always had major speakers, and uh, everybody was anybody uh, attended. Uh, they had two major uh, bars, the Hunt Room, and I can't remember what the other one was. But at any given time, uh, especially in the evening at five o'clock, after you know what we'd call now happy hour, we didn't call it that then. You had all the people from city hall, the city offices, the state offices. That's where they gathered. We came to learn that this Legionnaire's disease had originated in the Bellevue Stratford. Remember, it was about a couple of months, if my memory serves, uh, before we knew that. Uh, we realized how many people could have been put at risk, certainly the governor of the time, certainly the mayor, all of city council, uh, and most of the business people. It's where the Chamber of Commerce had a lot of that their meetings. It played uh, very heavily into what ifs in Philadelphia. Now, it was fairly soon after the incident occurred, which was during a Legionnaires convention in Philadelphia in, in the middle of summer. Uh, they discovered it because there was that commonality of Legionnaires and when you start to see a lot of legionnaires dropping out, they say, well, you know, where had these people been? Or what did they have in common? And where did they, uh, they go? And all of them had been at the Bellevue Stratford for that 1976 convention. So then they started working back from there. And it was quite a few months afterward that uh, they were able to determine exactly how it was spread. Now, one of the in, in interesting elements from a press standpoint, in the Bellevue Stratford had a press room. They had a press room because they had so much press there almost every single weekday because of the number of people that would be at the hotel who were newsworthy. Plus, you had all your labor negotiations were going on there every time there was a SEPTA strike, the unions and, the, and SEPTA prior to that, the Philadelphia Transit Company, they had rooms at that hotel. We started to realize we're covering this thing at the press room in the Bellevue Hotel where these people had contracted Legionnaires disease. And I think a bunch of us started to say, you know, is this the best thing we should be doing sitting right here where, where it all started? But, you know, here it is many years later, and I'm still talking to you. You mentioned the what ifs. Was there ever a level of panic or was it uncertainty? What do you remember from covering it? I, it there wasn't uh, any panic. And, and I, I think the reason was because the realization came a couple of months later. And when they realized 
that the Bellevue Stratford was the focal point of of the Legionnaires' disease. It was already a couple of months had gone by and nothing else had happened. Uh, you hadn't seen anything similar, either from the Bellevue Stratford or coming out of Philadelphia. So it was viewed as a one-time thing. It wasn't until uh, they determined what it was or what what the cause was or their best uh, their best estimate of the cause that people started to think about it and realize well now that you know the cause you know how to how to fix it so that period of time i think uh leveled out any sense of panic that you would normally had if you had people dropping on the spot and you knew exactly what was going on at that time That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth Coronavirus. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic here in the Philadelphia area, or if you want to know how what you see or hear on the news is going to change your own life or your own routine, then subscribe to the KYW In-Depth podcast. Search for KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. My name is Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon. 